Splicecast. Welcome to the Crafted by series from the No One Not podcast. This is the second part of our five-part look at the Singapore music scene. If you haven't heard the first part, give it a listen. You don't have to listen to this five-part review in sequence, but I have structured these with hopefully a good sense of flow as I explore five different areas. The music, the business, the performance, the media, and the reality. This is the business episode. Like the old Hollywood joke, it's not music friends, it's music business, and I'm going to look at the business aspect of music in Singapore. I'm Ken Dalbridge, and I run an audio studio that caters to the advertising and corporate worlds. Before starting this business, when I was a staff composer, sound designer, and audio editor, I didn't want to know about the business side. I was so in love with the art of making sonic things that the dollars and cents behind the company held no interest. But once I had to run my studio, I made it my business to understand the nitty-gritty of how to run a profitable business. And I'm going to look at the Singapore music scene and see how things work out when you apply the same metrics of profit and loss against the music industry. I've even got an ultra-smart economist who will present a special explanation on how the numbers work. But before we get to that, let's have a quick recap of things so far. You ready? Here we go. Summer. I'm a singer-songwriter in Singapore. Oh, what a big surprise, or am I? We met Fim Summer, a singer-songwriter who represented Singapore in the 2018 edition of the South by Southwest Festival in Texas, USA. This is her song Lone Star State, written after her South by Southwest performance. It's one of the many songs that Fim has on Spotify. So where do things go from here? I'm not talking about film specifically, but more of an overall question. If you're making original music in Singapore, how do you take things from being an undiscovered artist and take it to the next level where you're hopefully on your way to becoming a full-time artist and even a household name? When MTV first launched in Singapore in 1995, it was a watershed moment for many in the music scene here. The most iconic music channel ever would have its Asian base in the Lion City. Looking back, things have changed so much. In 1995, musical acts made money via a tried and tested playbook. Make an album, sell physical units, get radio airplay, and tour to promote that album. Back then, you had to have a major record label behind you. They provided the finances for making albums, shooting videos, promoting songs, and getting tours booked. Now, in 2019, with the internet vaporizing all sorts of industries, what's the path for musicians? Has the dawn of the digital era really leveled the playing field so that anyone could be a superstar? And no. First, an artist has to get their songs, whether it's one super catchy tune or a whole album of songs, into a fixed form and not just in their head. And that typically means going to a recording studio. In Singapore, when you think recording studios where you can record an album, there's one name that comes up again and again. And he's always viewed with respect and affection. My name is Leonard Suse. I work as a music producer in Singapore in a studio called Snakeweed Studios. I've been doing this for the last 20 years, actually, since 1998. In that whole span of 20 years, I think I've produced about 500 over albums. 
The tools might have changed over the years, but Leonard has also moved with the times. While musicians can now do a lot more prep work at home, they still need a proper place to record certain aspects of a track. I still do get clients who come in because they want the kind of snakeweed sound that they're used to, uh, which has been going on for the last 20 years. But I find that most times people now come to the studio to just do drum tracking because they can't do that at home. Sometimes they will do vocal tracking and there are times also where, you know, like different producers will send me songs to mix because they've done it at home, but, you know, they, they prefer someone else to mix the music. Leonard would spend a lot of time with acts, working on their music, perfecting mixes, and following their progress once he delivered the master mixes of their music. He remembers the arrival of MTV in Singapore. I think when MTV was around, it kind of benefited only a, a few artists in Singapore. Even though the HQ, the headquarters was here in Singapore, but I think we did not take advantage of that and tap on that you know, potential. Like some of the artists who really benefited from MTV were Electrical and also um, at that time Inch and you know, the Great Spy Experiment who had music videos. It exposed Singapore music to actually the region, so people in the Philippines, people in Indonesia could actually access Singapore music through MTV, like watching music videos of our talent, our artists. But music videos were expensive, you know, they were like not every band could afford to make a music video or, or at least a good quality music video that MTV would broadcast. So I think that's why, you know, we had very limited success through MTV. The digital world has removed many barriers that used to stop aspiring musicians from reaching their audience. Now, with social media, music streaming, and other outlets easily available. But in the same way that a top-selling fiction author needs a publishing house behind them to market their books and get them to the top of the bestseller lists, musical acts also need the marketing and sales expertise of a label to simultaneously push in multiple markets. I think the role of a label is still quite important for actually bands who are looking to pursue more of a career for their music. This is Lynette, a manager at Warner Music, one of the biggest labels in the world. Labels can actually provide a lot more resources and support and most importantly, they provide a lot more data analysis so you can look at how many streams are you getting and where are they coming from, where your audience are coming from and how do you maximise your release date impact. So I still feel a label actually still very relevant in today's time. But only when an act is ready to take it to the next step and they can make use of the label resources and everything. One big difference with labels now is that they don't want a diamond in the rough. With technology making it easier to make a finished track on a shoestring budget, a label wants to see something a little more polished. Yeah, because it's really hard to build someone from the ground up only because you're not sure how invested they are in their career because young people especially change their minds very often. So when you see a band start from the ground up and you can see how they move on to the career in a short, maybe one or two years time, you can see how serious they are in their craft. And you can also really see how developed they are along the years and how seriously they're going to take it. In terms of artist development, I really think that the mindset of young bands today are much more commercially driven. They view it as more of a career option than just a hobby. Making music and getting it out there lets the world hear what you've got. Getting to that stage means overcoming a big hurdle. It requires hard work and motivation. In life, no one rides for free, and you've got to have some get up and go. Yes, I think that is still a very organic way of discovering new acts. Because a lot of acts, before they go to any labels or they even find any managers, they will probably have to find their own shows, release their own music. 
it's true how they do all these things that you can see how well a band is actually being able to present themselves how can they market themselves if they are better than the rest of the acts you can see the intention and when the intention is there there's a lot more potential than versus an act that has doing it as a hobby they just release music as and when they like there's no like strategy there's no goals so if you can find a band with this kind of strategy and mindset it's so much easier to work with them because they know exactly what they're trying to do and what they're going to achieve because everyone has very limited resources that's where a major label can come in to support with even more resources in terms of marketing research they can help the band it's in the label's interest to protect their investment and guide their acts' careers forward. So these bands are actually kind of already beyond the young budding band stage. They are on the next phase of their career where they will need real guidance and management. So that's where the label can come in to help out with management aspects of things. Some bands, they actually have their own managers as well. So it's about how the label and the manager or the acts can all work together to achieve that goal that we want to achieve. At some stage, an aspiring act needs to get its own management. It's a natural extension of how a career grows, especially when things start to take off. At their core, artists are artists, and business people are business people. A musical artist or act wants to create music. They don't care for the business side of things, because that side of things tends to screw up the artistic side. It's hard to write the next great poppet if you're busy looking at the account ledger for your most recent financial year. It's just not rock and roll. Having a manager who works for the best interests of the act brings the business savvy to the table. I think first, first and foremost, I must really like the music. Willie Tan of Aging Youth is the Singapore-based manager of music sensation Jasmine Soko. She's red hot right now, and Willie has been working with her for over two years already. He's an extremely focused guy, and one of the key factors for him is to know that anyone he manages has the desire to take things to the next level. We worked on uh, her first single, so usually I try to see whether if I could work with the artist. My management style, my my kind of uh, temperament, honestly, as well, and the artist's uh, working style, temperament, and honestly, the most important thing, the drive, must match. So I think it's been good. I uh, sort of like work with her, help her with the A&R, artist and repertoire part, uh, finding good songs, uh, pair up with producers and all that to develop her debut single. Under his guidance, Jasmine's first single, 1057, took off. What drew me to Jasmine Soko was that I think she had a sound that was quite unique. Not exactly super original, to be honest, of course, but it was still very refreshing in the sense that, you know, you heard it, it's a bit familiar, but I think the melody, upbeat tempo of the first single that we chose, I think that's something that was convinced me that it will work. And uh, we were quite thankful that right from the get-go, the first single, the debut single, caught the attention of like the local music press and a couple of the regional music press as well and uh, we managed to get the song on MTV as well and quite a few other platforms uh, Spotify featured her quite heavily across their playlist as well so we were very thankful for that so that was when actually she decided to say okay yeah sure I would love to work with you on a more official status so I became her manager for about I think uh, almost two and a half years But don't think Willie is a Svengali-type manager who has total control over all aspects of his artists. He wants his artists to be in the driver's seat, to be true to themselves. His role is to support that. The artists are very much in the driver's seat. I always believe that as a manager, we are here to amplify and to support the artist's vision. That vision created an EP in 2017, and then for 2018, Willie and Jasmine opted to go old school and focus on the songs. 
just trying to find out what works or what doesn't work. And to be honest, these days, uh, it's back to the 60s, I think, where that it's more singles driven rather than uh, EP driven. 2018 kicked off with Jasmine's single, F5. It was a commissioned piece of work by a Japanese media house. The chorus and the drop was actually used for the theme song of one of their travelogue programs and that was actually broadcasted on NET TV, NET TV on in Indonesia. So it's like probably what according to, to them, they were telling us that it's the third most watched TV channel in Indonesia. The single was the theme song for ABC Horizon's travelogue series, Sensasia. The song has racked up more than 1.7 million streams on Spotify and led to a label deal. Recently, we signed to Warner, so we are, she's a Warner artist as well now. With her flair for presentation and performance, Willie got Jasmine on Rave Now, a reality music show in China on the Tencent video streaming service, reaching a massive market. She finished in the top four, with her performances grabbing over 42 million views, and her social media went bonkers in the Middle Kingdom. On Weibo, she added over 65,000 followers in just six weeks. Compared to Singapore, the China market is gargantuan. With a population of 1.4 billion people, everything gets recalculated. Yeah, we know that the language has to change, probably make some adjustments and everything. And we've managed to find good partners in Warner Music to work with us to develop a career in China. The way that they, the fans react is something that I've never seen in Singapore. Singaporeans are very mild when it comes to their online comments, except when they're scolding people online. China is the same thing as well, Chinese fans as well, but they're very exuberant in terms of uh, expressing their love for the artist. They always like leave comments like, I love you, you're so cute, I really love your music, you're really cool, I love you, there's <laughs> a lot of love involved. Um, so yeah, I think uh, that's something that, that, that we are still adjusting and we're trying to navigate as well. Jasmine Serko's new single, Tired, is continuing her rise in the industry. Released on March the 1st, it's already racked up 1.5 million streams on Spotify alone. This episode is about the music business, and you might be wondering when I was going to get to the actual business of music. This is actually where things start to get interesting. When you pay for music, how much does the artist get? I decided to get a numbers wizard, Danny Krisnanto-Cordy of the Economical Rice podcast, to help explain what happens when you buy music. So, it's Saturday evening and you've got a hot date coming up. You've shaved and trimmed your hair, you're dressed to the nines, and you're all set to splurge on your lucky lady at the fancy French restaurant right by Fullerton Bay. But before you dig into your $78 plate of wild Nagasaki sea bass garnished with white asparagus, ginger, and spring onions, have you ever considered how your food comes to your plate and how much of that $78 actually goes to the fishermen? Well, to put it simply, it goes a little something like this. You've got a fisherman somewhere on the coast of Nagasaki toiling all day and breaking his back to catch the sea bass. Then he sells it to a local buyer in the city who will package and process the fish, who proceeds to ship it off to say a wholesaler who buys fish from many different sources and stores them at a giant warehouse freezer. After a period of time, the wholesaler receives an order from a fancy French restaurant all the way in Singapore, and after going through another rigorous round of shipping and moving, 
the sea bass finally lands at the doorstep of the restaurant, where on a Saturday evening, a fancy French chef prepares your main course with asparagus and ginger and spring onions so that you can impress your date. Voila! At each step of the Nagasaki sea bass supply chain, markups and fees are added whenever it passes hands. Be it from the fisherman to the local buyer, or from the wholesaler to the restaurant. This is so that there is enough to pay for staff doing the processing, keeping up with operating costs, rental of equipment, yada yada yada. But ultimately, when all is said and done, the portion of the $78 dish that actually goes to the fisherman who caught it in the first place is about 10%. So yeah, bon appetit! That is a pretty tough business. The rest of the income goes to the label and the distributors. Now before you start pointing fingers at them, remember, the labels do the heavy lifting when it comes to sales and marketing. They often front some serious coin to get the songs and videos made. Distributors have to get paid because they are the ones getting the music to the fans. In 1995, it was brick and mortar stores like Tower Records. In 2019, it's Spotify, Apple Music and others. You know, I could do a 10-episode podcast on the business of music. It's such a huge subject. But you know, there are actually entire podcasts dedicated to the subject. If you're interested in the business side of this, go check out The Music Biz Weekly. It's a fantastic podcast. About the music business in Singapore, I'm going to leave you with the wise words of Leonard Suisei. There's actually a note of optimism. I think it's becoming better. Like right now, I think the musicians are much better, much more educated, and also they are very tech-savvy. So they do know how to actually uh, uh, create sounds. They do know what they want in music because I work with a lot of young bands, you know, and I used to be the one telling them what to do, you know, like, okay, maybe you try this, maybe you try it. Nowadays, they are telling me, you know, they are the ones that say, oh, Leonard, I want to get this kind of sound. I want to experiment more. I want to do this, do that. Like, maybe, like, you know, change the tone of my voice so it sounds totally different. So they are the ones who are more forward thinking. They are the ones who are trying to evolve, I think, into a new new entity or new yeah, you know like very heavily influenced by what's coming out from the west but they're also trying to put their own character and their own culture into uh, their music thanks for listening to part two of our music industry review part of our crafted by series from the no or not podcast it was written recorded and mixed by me ken delbridge with a big thank you to Danny of the Economical Rice podcast for his fishy explanation of how revenue is split. If you like this podcast, please subscribe for free. We're available at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and a load of other places. We'd love it if you'd give us a five-star review. It helps other people find our podcast. And if you have a friend who you think would like this podcast, please do recommend us. In our next episode, we'll be looking at the performance side of the Singapore music scene. To learn more about our podcast, please visit knowornot.com. That's K-N-O-W-O-R-N-O-T dot com.